6, verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I remember growing up, as many of you probably do as well, hearing desperate grown-ups, parents, and teachers use the phrase that cleanliness is next to godliness. How many of us have heard that phrase or seen that written somewhere at some time? And it's usually employed by someone who is so desperate for us to clean up after ourselves that they're willing to implore the name of God in order to get us to do it. And we come to a certain point where we hear that so many times or it becomes a concept to us that is just burned into our, our psyche that we begin to think that that is actually scripture. That somewhere in the Bible there's a verse that actually says that cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, it might please you to find out that it actually is not, that there actually is not a scripture that says that. That is just something that uh, was made up and then that caught on because it kind of makes sense. We kind of equate God with cleanliness. Now, in our text tonight, though that is not a verse in the Bible, that the cleanliness of a room or of our clothes or of our smell or whatever it is, that that is next to godliness, there is a cleanliness that is godly. And it's what Paul the Apostle is talking to us about as we cross now into chapter 7. He's speaking to a church that in many ways, though they were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, they had become unclean in their behavior and in the liberties that they were taking and in the things that they were allowing in their midst. Not a physical uncleanness of their facilities or of their, uh, you know, their bodies or their clothes necessarily, but a spiritual uncleanness, if you would, uh, concerning the things of God. And so the apostle now, as he crosses this barrier into this chapter, is encouraging them unto a spiritual cleanliness. And the motivation that he uses in order to encourage this cleanliness is not a... a, 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 a a motivation that affects the quality of their environment, but rather the experiential benefits of clean spiritual living. That there is a benefit that's attached to a clean life that is worth it for us then to live that kind of a life. And so as he finished off the last chapter, the verses that we read by way of introduction, he gave to them a call for separation. And he used, um, you know, four words as he talks to the Christian, calling us to be separated from this world's system. When a person is born again and they give their life to Jesus Christ, there's a transition that takes place. They essentially die to everything that they were before that, that point, and they are born into a whole new life. They change their citizenship from citizens of this world to now being citizens of what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. And in changing of that citizenship, there's a change also of the constitution, wherein the world operates and lives by a set of standards. The kingdom of God also operates and lives by a set of standards as well. And the call of God in our lives when we come to him is that we would leave off the set of standards that we held when we lived in the world and that we would now live by the standards that he set before us in, or as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
And so Paul uses four words in those chapters uh, to kind of um, set the distinction between the world system and the kingdom system. He uses the word equality or implies it uh, uh, there. And then he uses the word fellowship. And then he uses the word harmony or concord. And then he uses the word unity. And there's a contrast associated with every one of those words. He says um, there in verse 14, he says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That is that there's an inequality between those that live in God's kingdom and those that are merely citizens of the world. They don't belong together. There is not fellowship between believers and unbelievers. Fellowship is having things in common. There is not a common ground or a common denominator between believers and unbelievers. There is not a harmony that can exist between Jesus and the devil. The devil, the clearly, clearly stated to be the prince of this world, and Jesus to be the king of that kingdom which is to come. And there's no harmony between the two. They are on completely different scales, and there's none, none at all. And then finally, unity. The word that he uses um, <clears throat> there in verse 16 when he talks about having an agreement. What agreement does the temple of God has with idols? And so there is a distinction between these two systems. And the call that is given to the Christian, to the one that's been born again, is that we are to be separate from the world's system. Now, in chapter 7, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul now gives this promise that's associated, or he calls upon these promises that are associated with this separation. He says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us therefore cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so in the verses that proceed that lead up to chapter seven, the apostle gave us three promises from God that are connected to the call to separation that he then gives us in verse one of chapter seven. And those are these, that first of all, when we are not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, that then we are called the temple of the living God. He gives that in verses 14 through 16. The second promise that he gives is that when we touch not the unclean thing, that we are then received by God as his own. And then the third promise is that when we are separated, he is willing and glad to be unto us a father. And notice he doesn't just simply say that he'll be called our father, but he says that he'll be our father. And there's a world of difference between just being called uh, father and actually being someone's father. And so that he will be the, we will be the temple, that we will be received and that he will be our father. And, he, and Paul connects those promises to the command on our end, that we're to be separate from this world. Now, two of the most beautiful words that are associated with the Bible are the words promises and commands. Now, you might be thinking here, one of those two words is very sweet and precious to me, but the other one, maybe not so much. I like the promises. I actually have a book, the, 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 you know, the Jesus People Promise Pocket Book, you know, and I love the promises of God, but maybe not so much the commands of God. How could you say that the commands of God are precious? Well, the reason why the commands of God are precious is because anytime God gives a command to a man or a woman, he also gives to that person the ability to keep that command. Someone has put it like this, that God's commandments are his enablements. Meaning that if he asks something of me, that in that he's my creator and he's asking it of me, that he must also provide for me the ability to perform that which he is asking me to do. His commands are his enablements. He supplies us with it. When he told the man to stand up and stretch forth the withered hand, that man in and of himself was not able to do it. He was crippled from birth. But when Jesus gave the command, there was an enablement that accompanied the command and the man was able to do something that otherwise would have been impossible. 
When Jesus said to the man who had been lying sick in his bed, crippled, who was lowered by his four friends, he said, take up your bed, arise and walk. Now that man wasn't able to do that prior to the command. But when Jesus gave the command, it was accompanied by an enabling power and he was then able to do it. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, and he spoke the words and said, Lazarus, come forth. The man Lazarus had been dead with no ability in and of himself to keep that command. But when the command came from Christ, there was enabling power that accompanied the command, and Lazarus was then able to do the impossible. And thus for the Christian, the child of God, when God gives a command, it becomes for us an opportunity to do the impossible and to experience the supernatural. And thus, rather than shying away from the commands of God because of their impossibility, when we embrace them by faith, we find that we have the ability to do something that in ourselves would have been impossible. And thus, his commandments are his enablements. Now, the other of those two words is the promises. And the promises of God are not enablements, but rather they are entitlements. That is that when we see a promise in the Bible, something that God has spoken over his sons and daughters that he's going to do for them or that he's going to give to them, that when we then turn those promises back to him in asking and we plead that he would perform those promises within our lives, we can rest in confidence that he's going to do it because he's promised that he's going to do it. And the Bible tells us that all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. In 1 John chapter 5, the apostle John writes, and he says that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have the things that we've asked for. And thus when we see his promises and we ask for them, They become entitlements to us and therefore the promises of God are the opportunity for us in our lives to obtain the undeserved. So his commandments are an opportunity for us to do the impossible and his promises are an opportunity for us to obtain what is undeserved. Now oftentimes in the scripture, the two things are coupled together. There is a such thing as conditional promises. That is that God says, if you do this, then I will do this. He gives a promise, but he attaches it to some responsibility on our end. And for us, that becomes an opportunity to experience supernatural things and obtain things that we don't deserve all at once. And so the command that the apostle Paul gives to us that's connected to the promises that were laid before us in chapter six is that we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Our side in seeing these promises worked out in our lives is that we're to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit that would be for us a lack of separation from this world. Now, right up front, when I look at that call and I look at that command, I'm met with the impossibility of it. Do you see those words there where it says, let us cleanse ourselves? Right up front, I'm confronted with the impossibility of that because we know as Christians that that is an impossibility for every one of us in our life. We can cleanse the room that we're in. We can cleanse our bodies and our clothes, but that's about as far as it goes. We do not have the ability to reach inside our own hearts, our own minds, and clean up the things that are there because it's out of our reach. It's not something that's there. It's not possible for us. The whole reason why we came to Christ in the first place is because we realized that we couldn't clean our own lives up, that we were lost in sin, that we were separated from God, that we were alienated from his life and from his promises, that we were kept in darkness and that we were without hope and without God in the world. That was our state without him and we could do nothing about it. And that's why God sent his son Jesus into the world to take our place in death and then open the door of salvation to us so that through his entering into our lives, he would be able to clean up what we are unable to clean up in ourselves. 
if it were even possible for us to clean up our own lives, Paul writes to us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, that then Christ is dead in vain. He says, for if righteousness can come through the law, that is through my obedience, then Christ died for nothing. He didn't have to die because I'd be able to do it. And so I'm immediately met with the impossibility of what the Apostle Paul is asking me to do in this. But the fact of the matter is that even though it's impossible for me to clean up my own life, I still have a part to play. The command is still given in New Testament letters that I'm to cleanse myself from filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. And what this tells me is that sanctification or separation or cleanliness spiritually within my life is a two-way street. It isn't just God, but it's God working in tandem or in partnership with me to see these things done and performed within, within my life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says that it is God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Apart from him, I cannot, but apart from me, he will not. He works in me to will, that means to want it, and then to do. He gives me the power, but he still calls me to perform it and to obey. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, famous verses where Paul says that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. He goes on after that to say that we are his workmanship. That is that he's working, crafting our lives. We're his ball of clay, if you would. That we're created in Christ Jesus, that's his work, foreordained unto good works that we should walk in them. Do you see that there's two, a two-way street in that? He's the one that's creating us. He's the one that's foreordained the works. But he says that we should walk in them. That is that we have a responsibility in the process. In Psalm chapter 110, verse 3, the psalmist declares prophetically by the Spirit of God, speaking of Christ that would come. He says, thy people shall be willing in the day of your power. That is, that the day that he gives power to us, he will also make us willing and able to perform what he has done. And so his command, though it is impossible, it is met by the strength and the ability to do what he's asked. But I must obey, just as the man who stretched out his hand, or the man who took up his bed, or as it was of Lazarus, who himself stood on his two feet and came forth out of the grave. And the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, says to you and I tonight, he says that we are, because we have these promises, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So you ask the question and you say, well, what then is the filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit? What is it that I'm being asked by God to be cleansed of or to be separated from? Of course, the best interpretation of the Bible is what? The Bible, that's right. So what does the Bible say? Well, in the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 5, in verse 19, what's defined for us there is the works of our flesh. That is, what would be considered to be the filthiness of the flesh that can still exist in the life of a Christian or that can creep into the life of a Christian over time. And so Paul writes to the church and he says this. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Now, all of those four words have to do with sexual impurity, some uncleanness in a sexual manner within our lives, whether it be uh, sexual things outside of a marriage where there is a marriage or things outside of a marriage where there isn't a marriage or other things that make a, render a person sexually unclean that maybe don't even involve sexual contact uh, at all. The Bible would qualify these as the mental things, uh, the thoughts and fantasies that can uh, defile us in that way. Uh, many of those um, things that are, are branded as uncleanness in the Bible are called the works of the flesh. He goes on and he gives a secondary list in verse 20. He says, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, bursts of wrath, strife, that is fightings, bickerings, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, 
revelings, and such like. Of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't need to go through and expound each of the things on this list uh, and make us all recognize what we are apart from Christ. It's kind of like that man who uh, went to the doctor and the doctor, you know, brand, uh, um, um, you know, scolded him again for having high cholesterol uh, after, you know, being scolded about it in the past. And so the doctor brings to him a sheet of all the foods uh, that cause high cholesterol. And the man, uh, you know, looks at, at the paper pensively for a minute and then uh, looks at the doctor over the sheet and says, Doc, I already know this. You know, and we don't need to know what what all of these things do and are. We, we recognize them um, for what they are. But the Bible calls those things filthiness of the flesh. And they're things that we carry with us into this salvation. Even though we've been blood-bought and we're saved, these are things that God calls us to separate from. And he gives us the power to do it. But he says that we're to do it. It's up to us to stretch out the withered hand, to stand up, and to be separate from the filthiness that is in our flesh. The other thing that Paul says that we're to be cleansed from is what he calls filthiness of the spirit. And that would be the invisible things. Uh, I call it the unclean in the unseen. The spiritual defilements, the invisible sins that we allow <clears throat> to, uh, um, to exist within our lives or what happens sometimes is that sin goes under the radar. It's out of human view, but it's still very much alive and burning within my heart in a place where no one can see it. And Paul calls that the filthiness of the spirit. It might not be seen outwardly, but we know that it's there in our lives. And God knows that it's there in our lives. And so he calls us to be cleansed and separated from it. When I first became a Christian, I was 19 years old. And you can build a lot of sin into a life in 19 years uh, apart from knowing Christ. And when I came to that point of laying down my life before him and, and he graciously saved me by the blood of Christ and, and by the work of the cross and by nothing in me at all, but just completely and totally by grace and mercy, undeserved uh, by me. When I came into him, I came with a very foul mouth and a very foul mind and with several very unclean vices that were present in my life that found their expression in various ways, but were all rooted in the things that we just read in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Many of those things that were in my life, I knew right away at the moment I, I asked Christ to come in, I knew that those things were unclean and I knew that they had to go from me. And some of those things went very easily. Some, some things, it was almost no effort at all. There was just an automatic transformation uh, for instance, a foul mouth just was gone. It, didn't, it was so unnatural for me to use uh, foul language after I was saved. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't a struggle. I didn't have to think about it or, or pray for it. It just kind of happened. There were other things like that, that, that they just changed automatically. But there was a whole host of other things that it wasn't like that, that there was a fight and there was a battle and there was a hanging on. And some of those things I wanted out of my life, and some of those things, honestly, I had a little bit of affection for. And I had to learn to hate those things before those things could be uh, properly removed from my life. And I knew what those things were, and I was glad to see them go. And once some of those big things, you know, those early uh, things in our Christian life that we know, as soon as we get saved, that this is on God's chopping block, it's gonna go from my life. They did. Over the course of a few months, uh, for some it was over the course of a few years, I saw those things changed by God. I saw them removed from my life in a way that when they would come back, I would recognize them and again still know how to deal with them and continue to cut them off, almost like when you're vaccinated. It doesn't mean you're never going to be exposed. Uh, you know, a, a seed of a virus isn't going to get in, but when it's there, there's an antibody present. You know how to fight it. You've gone down that road. You know it for what it is. There might be a cough or a sniffle, but that thing ain't going to survive, you know. And, and so for me to get past those early things, but I remember my wife, who, who at that time when I first got saved was just my friend and, and had been in the Lord a couple of years before me. She gave me a very uh, sobering warning. She said, you're going to find that sin in your life is much like an onion, 
that there's going to be the stinking layer of foul-smelling substance that's right there in your face all the time. And you're going to fight like crazy to get rid of it. And finally, you're going to see it cut back and peeled away. But what's underneath it is another layer. And it's going to be like that for the rest of your life. You're going to be peeling back layers of sin. And I took that to heart. I never forgot that she said that. You know what? It's proven to be true. Because once the foulness of those original things were cut away, I found that there were sins under the surface, deeper things that God also had on the chopping block that I didn't even know were there. Things like selfish ambition, laziness, reckless eating, a poor work ethic, invisible to everyone else, but a, but a, but a crazy self-absorption, a lack of concern for others, things that were buried from the public view that no one else could see. And I noticed that God began working on those things and cutting those things. And it's still going on even to this day within my life. There are things that God sees and that he is continuing to remove from my life. And that will continue and carry on all the way until the day that Jesus comes for me or or the rapture takes place. Now, every one of the things that have been removed from my life and the things that will be removed from your life as we obey this call to separation they all go the same way. The same process happens for every sin that's removed from our life. The first step in it is that, first of all, we see it in the word of God that it is sinful. We see that it isn't right. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is living and powerful that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And then he goes on to say that all things are naked and opened before the eyes of him with whom we deal. Meaning that God sees to the very core of what we are and he sees the things that must be removed from our life. And so we're reading the Bible that searches all things. And we come across a verse, and that verse speaks to something in our life that is a violation. It's unequal. It breaks fellowship. It's defiling. It's a, it brings a lack of harmony between us and God. And there's discord. There's something that's wrong within our lives. We see it in the Bible. Psalm chapter 119, verse 9, says, How can a young man cleanse his way but by taking heed thereunto according to your word? In Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 25 through 27, the Apostle Paul equating Christ in the church to a husband and a wife, and it says that Jesus washes us or cleanses us with the washing of water by the word of God. In John chapter 15, verse 3, as Jesus was with his disciples just prior to going to the cross, he said, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And so the first thing that God will do in separating us or cleaning us from things that need to go within our lives is that he will expose a flaw in us through the word of God. We'll see in his divine, inspired, written word the thing in our lives that's got to go because it's an offense to heaven and it's a lack of harmony, a lack of separation. The second thing that happens in this removal process, this cleansing process, is that there then must be met with me, I see the command, there must be the recognition of that error within my life. That is that I've got to be willing to to admit and deal with the fact that what the Bible is saying about me is true and that there actually is a problem. Now, thankfully, God knows that this means it's going to take multiple mentionings of the same thing to get my attention. How many of you have experienced that? You read something in the Bible, there's a verse, you say, oh, that's kind of convicting, but I'm going to pretend it's not me. And then you get in the car and you turn on Christian radio and you hear a message and that same verse or concept is being taught or preached upon and you say, well, this is great, but I'm just going to listen to country music today on the way to work. And then you get to work and you see on your coworker's desk a verse that addresses the same thing. And then you go to church that Sunday and the message somehow it mentions it. And there's a million other things mentioned in the message, but that's all you hear. And after a while, the conviction of the Spirit begins to awaken us. And we begin to say, maybe God is trying to get my attention about something. And rather than being offended by it, we're almost um, captivated by his love in it. Because we realize that he loves us enough 
that he's not going to leave me alone about this thing. He begins to reveal to me that this thing is on his list, that he wants it out of my life. And so I recognize it. Then, number three, the third thing that happens, and this does, you could skip this one, but most of us don't. Number three is, is in being cleansed is that there's then a failed attempt to try to fix it on our own. How many of you have ever done that? I know that I have. Okay, God, you want this out of my life, and so I'm just going to not do it anymore. And, I'm, and apart from you, I don't want you to be bothered by this. I really don't want you looking at it. I don't want it on heaven's record that this was in my life to begin with. And so I'm going to just take care of this, God. You can go talk to someone else. But it doesn't work. Because we're not able, independent of God, to remove the things from our life that don't belong there. And so our best attempts to try to reform our lives are that, reformation. They reform us, but they are not transformation because we cannot do that. And so we fall, we fail, and eventually, number four, we come to him in confession and ask for his forgiveness for that sin within our lives, and then we ask him to make the changes that are necessary. And when we come to him that way, we have now begun to um, enact the power that he has called us for uh, in order to see those changes effectively made within our lives. We confess those sins to God and we ask him to give us the power to make those changes and that change then uh, can begin within our lives. And then number five in seeing things removed from our lives is that over a relatively short period of time, change comes. Because God's word is short. And he says that if he can change us, that he will change us. Now, there's two benefits that come to us from being cleansed when we allow God to clean our lives. The first is that there's freedom and peace. Anytime we let go of something that we thought we needed because God asks us to let go of it because it's something he wants to clean out of our lives, there is immediately a sense of freedom and peace that comes to us as we, we let go of those things and we allow God then to fill the space that those things uh, held within our lives. Um, I, I know that this happens. I have five children and forgive me for the grossness of this illustration, but Noah has this thing where he, he can defile a diaper in ways that normal children cannot, but he can do it in a way where you don't know about it until about 10 minutes after you changed it. And you're like, what is that? And, and you realize that somehow it's on you, okay? <laughs> I never had this problem with any of the previous four, but for some reason, uh, he can do this. It's a gift that he has. It's supernatural. It's from God. It's just something that's there. And, and all of a sudden, I'm aware, you know, that there's something on me that's not supposed to be there in my life, okay? And so I immediately I'm looking for a way. I can't use my pants because that's just a failed attempt to try to cleanse myself, but I'm just making things worse because I'm spreading it around. And so I need to find the water, the source of cleansing. And so I bring it to the sink, I wash it off, and immediately there's this, ah, this calming sense that I'm clean. It's gone. I got it off of me. And that's something that happens when we allow God to cleanse something in our lives that doesn't belong there. There's immediately a sense of freedom and peace. The other benefit that comes from being cleansed from filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit is that we then open up our lives and enable the blessing and the undeserved benefits that come from God into our lives as a result of our being cleansed. We open the door for God to give us what we don't deserve because we've obeyed the call unto separation. But understand this in terms of the cleansing, and then we'll get on to the promise is that number one, you cannot be cleansed without a consistent relationship with the word of God. You cannot cleanse your life from filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit if the, a regular diet and a regular intake of the word of God is not a part of you. Because it is through the word of God that God calls our attention to the things that he wants to clean. And thus it is so important for us to be consistently in the scripture to not put it on the back burner or to think it to be unimportant or to tire of it as the children of Israel tired of the manna, but to continue in the word. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. But apart from the word of God, it is impossible to be cleansed. 
Also, you cannot be cleansed without a willingness to embrace the fact that you're flawed and without a willingness to deal with and look at the flaws within your life. And you could translate that into a single word, humility. Is that without a willingness in my heart to, to allow God to shine his light on things in my life that aren't light, right, and, and a willingness for me then to let that light shine on that spot and for me to look at it while God is looking at it in all of the shame and embarrassment of what it is, if I'm not willing to do that, then it is absolutely impossible for me to be cleansed. Jesus always addressed the thing that he was going to heal or cleanse before he healed it and cleansed it. He said to the man with the withered hand, stand forth in the midst. He called him to account in front of everyone, a man embarrassed of his infirmity, but he did it because he was about to cleanse it. And sometimes the things that God puts his finger or his searchlight on up in our, up in our lives are embarrassing or humbling to us. But if we're not willing to embrace that humiliation, not before men, but before God himself, and to confess it to him and say, yes, God, you're right, then I'm not going to be cleansed from it. And then number three, you cannot be cleansed without bringing that issue to God in honest confession. First John chapter one, verse nine says that if we confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and just to not only forgive us, that is to take the guilt of that sin away, but also then to what? Read it, church. To cleanse us. It's in the confession of the sin as we allow him to, to expose it and we bring it to him in confession that then it breaks the power of that sin within our lives and it cleanses us from it. It actually removes that sin from before us. And the reason why confession is necessary is because ultimately he's the only one that can do the cleansing. He's worked in our will. He's now made us willing. We bring it to him in confession. He gives us the power and now we walk within that power. Notice that um, after he calls us to a cleanliness of the flesh and of the spirit. Notice what he says after that, the Apostle Paul. He says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Back in chapter 7, verse 1. The word perfecting there does not imply that you and I will ever come to a point when we are absolutely perfect. Or that God is expecting us to be absolutely perfect before he'll release his blessing upon our lives. What the word perfecting means is to fulfill completely. And what that means is that I remain in a position where I'm allowing God to continually cleanse my life by removing each layer of that onion that we spoke of earlier. That is that I never come to a point within my life where I say, well, I've gotten rid of the, the, the top layers that are the most um, pervasive or, or the most offensive and now I'm at a point now where I'm pretty much about equal with everyone else in the church and maybe a little better than some and so this is where I'm going to stop. I've come so far and I've, taken, I've allowed him to take these things out of my life, but I'm not going to go any further. This is, this is good. I'm content and I'm settled here. And, and by Paul using this word perfecting, what he's saying unto us is that we're not to do that. That we're not to come to a point where we say, that's enough, God. I no longer want you, you to cleanse anything else out of my life. When God saved you and me, he saw everything that he wanted to do in our lives from start to finish in that one instant. In fact, if you really want to be theologically correct, he saw it way before that, the things that he wanted to do. But from person to person, the things that God wants to address within our lives might vary. For some, it might be 30 things over the course of your life that God's going to deal with. You know, he's going to take those big things out and he's going to deal with pride and he's going to deal with uh, covetousness or money love or he's going to deal with smoking or, you know, he's got this list of things that he, and he's got his order of how and when he's going to remove these things from our life. And, and for some, maybe you have longer years, he's going to take 50 things or 40 things, whatever. But every one of those things that he wants to take out of our life, we must come to the point where we're willing for him to take those things out. And Paul is saying to us here by the Spirit of God that we are never in our Christian life as long as we're in the world on this side of eternity to stop allowing God to cleanse us from the things that come to the surface and he calls sin within our lives. 
perfecting holiness. And the key to doing that is what he calls at the end of the verse, in the fear of God. That it is a holy, reverential respect, honor, and awe of God that will keep us in a position where we're willing to allow him to keep cleansing and keep working within our lives. Solomon, the author of Proverbs, the wisest man that that ever lived, according to God himself, spoke the words, and he said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, the source of all good decisions in my life come from or find their root in a healthy fear of the living God. And if you and I leave off the fear, if we stop fearing God in his awesome nature and who he is, then we're on the fast track to stopping in this pursuit of cleanliness and separation, which he has called us unto. We will immediately begin to backslide. So what are the promises that are associated with a clean life that the apostle mentioned at the end of chapter six? The first of the three that he gives to us are, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is to have all of God living in you. Now just think about those words. I'm going to say them again. To have all of God living in you. The apostle Paul reminds us that you and I, that we are the temple or the dwelling place of the true and the living God. And the picture of that is of the Old Testament temple, which was the place where the people of God would go to meet with the presence of God. In those days, he didn't live in his people. His presence was at the temple. And so several times during the year, they would go to the temple, or if you lived in close proximity, you could go as often as you would like, and you could there worship God, and you could experience his presence in in that place, in the temple. It was where he dwelt. Now, there was a minister called the high priest who served in that temple, and his responsibility in that temple was to ensure continually that there was an altar that was ready for a sacrifice at any given time. He would also make sure that there was pure water in the labor that could bring cleansing. He would also make sure that there was constantly a flow of oil in the lampstand, making sure that there was fire and light burning. And he was, the high priest, the only one that was allowed into the holy place or the holiest of all, the place where God would speak. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the high priest of God, that there is no other. There is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And so he's the high priest. And so if we are the temple... And if Jesus is the high priest, then for God to live inside of us, what that means is that with Christ in our lives as our high priest, there is continually an altar where there's a forgiveness of sins. That's what the altar did. They would bring their offering and the blood would be for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus in our lives, God in our lives, is the assurance that our sins are continually being forgiven. He's also the source of continual cleansing and satisfaction, which is what the water speaks of, the water of the labor. It's Jesus in our lives that cleanses us, that satisfies us, that brings satiation. It's Jesus that brings the continual Holy Spirit fire and anointing into our lives, the oil of his spirit being fed continually into us, that there's light and illumination and power in our lives for us to serve. And it represents, or he represents, his continual presence in us. And so God in our lives means so much more than just words. Oh, you're the temple. It's what you're called. It's a badge that you wear. No, God wants to live inside of our lives. And it's as we're cleansed and separated that we increasingly experience Jesus in this real and living way. Another important function of the temple in the Old Testament is that it possessed a a courtyard that was called the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles was the place where an unbeliever could come from a surrounding nation and get to know who the God of Israel was. Did you realize that that's part of God's intent with our lives as well? The part of his purpose in making us his temple and his dwelling place is that when unbelievers come into our presence, they can taste and see that God is good and gracious. They can get the flavor and the essence of who he is by being around us. And that's part of the reason why God calls us unto cleanliness. Because if we're defiled by sin in our flesh and in our spirit, 
that people are going to have a tainted view of who God is based on what they see in our lives. And so God desires to fulfill our lives. And understand this, there's nothing sweeter than his presence and his nearness and his fellowship with us in all of life. It's probably one of the greatest privileges that you and I have as believers is that we get to be the temple of the living God, that he would make his residence and his dwelling place with us. The second promise that Paul gives to us concerning our separation is not just that we would have all of God living in us, but that we would have all of what we are to be received by him. The second promise that Paul gives, he says that he will receive you. The word means to receive kindly and with favor. Meaning that when we pray and we come to him in prayer, when we worship or give or serve or seek, that we are received with favor. That when we come to him, it results in answer on his part and effect in our lives. It affects something. It does something. We're received by him. I don't know about you, but I want to be received by God. I want to know that when I pray, he's hearing me, that he's listening. The third promise that he gives, he says that I will be a father to you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul defines the three main things that a father does. Paul says, I was as a father to you. I exhorted, I comforted, and I charged you. It means that he calls us to his side. He admonishes and instructs and encourages us. He comforts us with calming and consolation. He charges us. It means to affirm what has been taught by divine revelation, that God takes up that role in every one of our lives. He becomes a father. He raises us up. He's committed to us. He's going to see us through. But you know what's an even greater aspect of God's fathering in our lives than any of those things? Is that we become like our father. Now, that's true for every one of us, isn't it? I know, and I try to not just dwell on the bad parts because I hate becoming like my father in the bad parts. But don't we all know what that feels like? There's some good and some bad in it, right? But we all become like our father and like our mother. It's just inherent. It's something that's in us. But if God says that I'm going to be your father, then what he's implying in that is that if you allow me to make this change in your life, There's going to be a process in play where you are becoming more and more like me. And it's the highest honor that we have. And so the Apostle Paul calls us in this passage and he says, Therefore, brethren, having these promises, the promise that God is going to receive us, that he's going to live in us and dwell in us, that he's going to be a father to us, he says, Let us therefore cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I don't think any one of us begin can even begin to know what awaits us in the day when he's revealed and we see him face to face. The worship team can come. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up here with this thought. It struck me recently in something that I was reading that when God created Adam and Eve, when God created Adam, Eve, who was the bride, was already created in Adam before she was taken out from him and formed from his rib. God created, the Bible says very clearly, in a seven-day span. He created for six days and then he rested the seventh. And then it says that he left off creating. He was done. Meaning that when Eve was formed from Adam, she wasn't created at that time. God didn't create after creation. Eve was already created. She was in Adam, and yet his side was open and something was taken out from him. And it was from what was taken out of Adam that Eve was then formed, brought to him, and the two became one. The two entities united. Now, The same thing applies to Christ and the church. The Bible says that you and I, that we are the bride of Christ. And what that means is that on the day that you and I were born again, some essence of what he is was given to us. 
our being created in Christ Jesus means that something of God was imparted to us. And one day that something will be reunited to him again when we see him face to face, when we know even as we're known. And in that, you and I haven't even scratched the surface of what it is that we even are. In Psalm chapter 8, David kind of contemplating this. He said, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? What are we? And I don't think we even begin to know, but one day we will. And for some reason, because of what we are and who we are, the devil hates us. And angels, the Bible say, look into the things concerning salvation and it blows their mind that we are what we are. Yet we don't even know the first mentionings of it. It's the mere edges of his ways. He's so big and so huge. And one day we'll be one with him. And what he calls us unto now, in this time that we're being sanctified, that we're being separated, he calls us to be clean. He says, come out from among them and be separate and I will receive you, says the Lord. And therefore we're to take up the command by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit with honesty and the confession of sin. And we're to say, yes, Lord, do in my life whatever you will do in my life. And as you reveal, as you expose, I will repent. And by your help, I will obey. And we will see cleanliness worked out within our lives. What will we look like? What would our church look like? What would our marriages and our families and our society look like if we allowed God to continually cleanse and then perform in our lives the results of those cleansings? And so what is it tonight that God's been knocking on your heart? or in your mind about concerning what he would have you to lay down and set down within your life. Perhaps there's some here tonight that long ago you left off peeling away the layers of the onion. You said, I've gone so far. I've gotten rid of what's exposed. I'm not really hurting anybody with what's left. The lower layers seem unimportant and they're harder to remove anyway, so I'm just going to leave these things behind. Perhaps tonight the Spirit of God would again whisper in your ear and say, hey, there's a deeper cleansing. There's a greater blessing. There's more of an experience that you can have with me. Would you have your sins and sacrifice my presence and my blessing in, in your life? Or would you leave your sins and have all that I desire to give and all that I can give for you? A conditional promise that if we would cleanse ourselves of the filthiness of the flesh and of the mind, that we would experience more and more of him, both for us, but also then through us, for a lost and dying world. God, give us wisdom. And may he give us power. May he give us illumination that we might live completely and only for him. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight. And as you've spoken through this word that's been recorded, we would ask, Father, that you would take from us those things that we hold maybe so desperately to, that you would bring conviction again and cleansing, and that we would know you the way that we were meant to know you. So be with us here tonight. Father, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Breathe on us again and bring us back to our first love that we might know you and the richness of your presence in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.